Look, egg touches you all day. Why wouldn't you be curious about who makes it, how hard it is? G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. I'm recording this episode on Wadarung country and I'd like to extend my respects to the lands on wherever you're taking our podcast this week. For the month of March, we're focusing on stories as part of our She Can campaign of women in agriculture. And our next guest is someone I've had on the list of people I'd love to chat to because boy, have they shared some stories about Aussie agriculture. My next guest is Pip Courtney. She's, I'll say, a queen of Australian agriculture. For more than 30 years, you probably recognise her for her role on Landline, where she became the host in 2012. But Pip actually didn't grow up on, on a farm. She grew up in Tasmania. And this week we're chatting about the influence of people and communities and some of the stories that she shared and what she's taken away from them, but also just... I guess the role of agriculture and the role of journalism in sharing what agriculture does more broadly. Pip has won numerous awards for her journalism and she has shared hundreds and hundreds of stories from people from right across Australia on all kinds of topics. So I was really excited for this chat. We went on for quite some time, but it was just fascinating getting the chance to sit down with Pip Courtney. So let's jump on in. Pip, I'm, I'm really keen to chat to you. I think you've definitely been someone who's been on my list of 100-odd people, but you've you've featured very prominently for a very long time. And I think when it comes to, I'll say, queens of Australian agriculture, there's probably not too many names that people associate with agriculture in both a rural setting or metro area than Pip Courtney. So thank you for coming and having a chat. My pleasure. I wish I was young enough to be a princess, but I'm getting old, so probably... <laughs> <laughs> you can choose your title. <laughs> I'm I'm really interested in our chat today. And I guess like to give a bit of context, every person I try and chat to, I really want to have a genuine curiosity and something I want to learn from them. And I think for you, I'm absolutely definitely not a journalist. Um, I guess I'm just someone who's curious about finding out more and asking questions. And I think that's probably something that has always made me who I am. But for you, journalist by trade, a younger Pip was... When you were a child, were you the kid that was always asking why? Uh, apparently my step-grandfather found it quite odd. I, when I was six, I was put on a plane to go over from Tessa to Victoria to see my grandmother who'd remarried. And my step-grandfather had all these silver cups and silver bowls, which were the prizes for his uh, Polworth sheep. And I was quite amazed by all this silverware and to learn that they were prizes and his um, stud sheep were in a special spot in the shed and were very spoiled and I followed him around asking why, 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 why. <laughs> I think I've been doing that my whole life. And he, he could be a bit grumpy and my grandmother expected to see me screaming down the path. She was always at the kitchen window with my pigtails flying and crying because he would have, oh, Ken would have lost his lost his cool and told me to nick off, but he never And uh, I think that's where I got my love of sheep from. He was obsessed with breeding a better sheep. And my cousins and aunt and uncle were sent from Tassie at Cabotown in Tasmania, but they had sheep as well. And I've always loved sheep and always loved asking why. What makes people tick? What makes them do what they do? What makes them choose something that's difficult? Uh, with no guarantee that you're going to get a wheat check or a wool check this year, no guarantee it's going to rain. Got an overdraft. Farmers really intrigued me. I'm interested before we jump too far into the journalist side, but what would you say? Was it that memory as a six year old that would be kind of that earliest, happiest memory in agriculture? I still remember when we pulled uh, Grandma picked me up at the Tom Marine Airport and we drove in and the the sun was setting and, and I was horse mad. There was a pony with its head over a gate. There was a the wool shed to the right. The sheep were all guarded up, ready for tomorrow's shearing. So we got out of the car. Pony, there's dogs, there's sheep, there's a shearing shed and there's space. And all I could imagine was, 
if I can get on that pony tomorrow, look where I can go. And then there were lambs in the boxes in front of the Aga. Um, there were chickens to feed in the morning. And there was just space. And I grew up in the suburbs, admittedly Launceston, it's hardly Sydney or Melbourne. And uh, then I met my new step cousins and I thought, they get to live here. Like, I've only got two weeks here and I didn't want to go home. And I pitched to my parents that they had my brother and my sister, Nick and Beck, and I could stay with grandma. So I was obviously thinking like a farmer then, like they had one boy and one girl. That's, I was access to requirements. I didn't need a, another girl. <laughs> they seemed, dad said later, it was hilarious. He said, look, the business case at six, why you should stay with grandma. And I pitched that nearly every year. <laughs> and I always felt like maybe there was a baby mix up in the hospital and that a farmer family had taken home my mum and dad's baby and that I'd somehow by accident ended up in in the birds. <laughs> I always felt like I could do this farming thing, live here, no problems. Um, I'm very disappointed that my fulfilling my business case was not put well enough at the age of six. <laughs> you know what is so interesting is I had a very, very similar upbringing and my my cousin, he's a few years older than me, tells this story. I must have been three or four years old. And he said, Oh, you're sitting in the tractor and you looked up at me saying, Can you be my dad and I'll just live here? And I think it's the exact same as you. It was this romantic side of ag which just completely captured me and I was I grew up in Sydney of all places just loved it lived and breathed it and couldn't wait to be on farm so on that like was it as you went through high school were different influences and things popping their head up and trying to take you away from farm life or was it a pretty clear picture I never thought that um, I would have a career in agriculture I studied ag science in grade 12 because everybody said um even an idiot can pass ag. And I had a very humanities-heavy um, matriculation list of subjects, and I thought, oh, well, I could just use an easy science. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's so troubling to me that for so long ag was pitched as an easy, easy thing for the young ones in the family. Uh, I absolutely was obsessed with it, and I took the class. I was going out with the farmer at the farmer's son at the time, and you spend more time talking with my dad than you do with me and you're out there collecting his weeds and asking questions. Uh, but still, ag seemed, I'd always wanted to be a journalist and I didn't really see how a farm could fit in. Um, so I, was, I suppose I just thought, well, I've got relatives on the land. Uh, as long as I've got a horse, which I bought with my first pay packet, pay packet for a dollar, it's my dad would have me a horse. As long as I can where to ride my horses and can stay in contact with farmers, and I could be a journalist, but farming would be the sort of parallel life. And I didn't really think that much of the ins and outs of farming. I just knew I loved the people and and farms, the landscapes. So at what stage did you see, did it start to pop up that there was a real opportunity between both your growing journalism career and also agriculture? I started in radio news in Hobart and was hopeless. I really didn't like radio. I really wanted to go and, and meet the people uh, that I was talking to, not not interview them in a, in a little booth and record it and cut it up and then find somebody else. And I used to see the camera crews and journalists coming back from the shoots. And I, I thought, that's, that's what I, I want to get out of the building. And so I, I landed a job with TV News in Launceston and two and a half years after I started. And I just felt like a bit, I fitted. Never really liked radio, not really technical. And I just felt like I, I belonged. So then I moved to Hobart, I did court reporting, um, quite a bit of sport reporting, which I really loved. My brother played cricket on and off in Tasmania. Grew up in a sport mad house, a sport mad myself. So really enjoyed um, when I was allowed off the leash on the weekend uh, to go and cover Sheffield Shield um, cricket in particular. Notting, not so much, because uh, I'm scared of boats. And uh, then I've, I've done the court reporting, which I found absolutely fascinating. It's real life right in front of you. 
of study shapes here at university, like I did in my arts degree, thought is the human condition just right there. The tragedy, the sadness, how life can spin on a dime and change in two seconds. And uh, But I wanted to get to the mainland and I applied for the landline job in Canberra. I've been trying to get out for a while. It's always, I think, for Tasmanians back then, Tasmanian's firing now and is very cool back then, Greece of Australia, the old person's home of Australia, and most, a lot of people my age just wanted to leave. And um, it's so great to see my state so popular now. And, um, but yeah, you sort of kept it, kept it sort of a bit secret that you were from Tasmania so we wouldn't get teased. So I took the job thinking I'll do it for 12 months and then move on to 7.30 report or something like that. But I just, all those old feelings of how much I admire farmers, how much I love this, this space and and what they do, that all came back. And, um, and I really felt like, I, I think I get these people. I know I'm not a farmer. I haven't studied ag at the university level. But to me, they were, these were the people I'd grown up with, the people that I went to school with, my relatives. I got them. And do you think in terms of your success to date in the ag space, it has been driven by that real care and investment that you've got at an emotional level in these people and their communities? So uh, I think part of it is I've just stayed. <laughs> um, I'm not the world's greatest reporter or anything like that, but I've stayed and I never really wanted to do anything else. And my plan was to get to the mainland and be working in current affairs by the time I was 30. And I just, just got there. And I've never really tried, never really come up with a decent five-year plan since because I've got everything I wanted on the mainland working in current affairs and it just happens to be in agriculture and um, while it not, might not have been very cool with some of my other colleagues working in politics or foreign correspondence, I just never really come up with a, another job that I wanted more than the one I've got now. That's pretty incredible. God, I wish I'd found, well, I think my, my job now, which we've kind of created is pretty special, but um, I've always when I've worked for other people, tried to chase that feeling of the dream job. And I thought I'd landed it out of uni and I was too scared to say, after that, I guess was a disappointment. I was too scared to ever say that I love this job <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, I think most people can sense that I absolutely love my job. And um, I think though it's it's important to, to make it clear to people that I'm not a booster for ag, I'm not their PR, ag's PR, I report on agriculture. So when there's difficult conversations to be had, I'm not going to say, oh, well, I don't want you guys to be under guys and girls to be under any pressure. Like a job of a journalist is very different to a PR person. I'm definitely a journalist reporting on agriculture. And you have to be very careful that I don't sort of, um, I don't put myself in, into ag. And uh, that people don't see me as the, someone who's going to advocate on their behalf because there are some really difficult conversations that I've had to report on and difficult issues for agriculture that are quickly ones, tricky ones over the years. And I won't shy away from that. Yeah, and I'm really interested in that. So things like, I guess, the coverage of things like the live export and others that I guess have needed to be reported on. Is there is there certain stories which have really stuck with you in terms of maybe not, I'm not sure what the right word is, not dread as such, but that uncomfortable feeling of, okay, this is a big conversation we're leaning into and there potentially could be repercussions, but more importantly is journalism leading in this in the space. Water. Let's talk about water. <laughs> yeah, so I, went, I was based in Melbourne for seven or eight years and, so I did a lot of stories about water and that, that was at the time where people were starting to go, gee, the river system's been over allocated. No one will argue that that's an opinion, that's just fact. And there was not enough water in the system to meet um, the needs of the people who had water licenses. So they, first of all, they put a price on water and farmers were used to having water be very cheap. 
and there's amazing innovations that once we price something so that is so valuable all these irrigation innovations came through and people said well let's pipe the water around our district and not have it in leaky evaporative channels um, but yeah that, that water was always a tricky one who, who how much does the environment get how much does the community get how much does the industry get uh, where the recreational fishers sit with this um, and you know obviously coal sand gas in Queensland and I did a story on that which I'm interviewed a farmer who said well we're really happy to have 60 wells on that place because we get five between five and ten grand per well we're in the middle of the drought and we have progressed our farm plan one generation nearly two generations faster than we thought because of that income and I, I sort of got a bit, bit of flat for presenting the final thing actually said we can live with the gas companies as if I had betrayed the team. And uh, but that farmer's viewpoint uh, was just as valid as somebody who wanted positive gas out off their farm and out of the entire region. So yeah, I think my competition for land, competition for water, competition for any scarce green resource, and also having and I suppose the green influence um, of commentary on agriculture. When I first started in 1993, the Murray Darling School of Blue Green Algae, the you know, zero till was still super new. The plough was still a very important implement in the farmer's shed. And there were these massive dust storms rolling um, from the centre into Sydney. And people were actually, and so. Cotton, you know, this is before um, BT cotton, the, the, the chemical and water use in, in cotton was being questioned. And agriculture was moved from the, the back page or a business page to the front page of the major newspapers. And people were, sensible people were saying, can farming exist in, say, Western New South Wales? Those sorts of things. And so, and then the green movement really is having conversations with farms and asking questions. And then we've got land care, which is greens, what I call light greens, the, the light greens and the farmers working together, like solving salinity problems, solving water quality, doing, bits, and, you know, farmers had to admit that we've overfleed in many areas and that's led to soil erosion and salinity. And um, you know, in, in New England, I went to farms where they said, we've overfleed so much, it's, it's the bite and the, the whole system here has collapsed and we've got no biodiversity and now we're planting trees. So that is one thing I've really enjoyed watching is farmers getting involved and being part of repairing the land and looking, I suppose, at the natural capital that they've got in their feet and valuing it in a way that I don't think maybe their older generations did. And not to not to criticise the older generations, you you, you use the information at the fingertips, and as the information comes in, farmers change. Exactly, and I think it is really interesting at the moment, isn't it? it is that this constant cycle of sustainability—it's at a point in time, it's with the best information you have in how you're able to act on it, but actually, it's constantly evolving, and depending on what the markets are doing, what is happening globally with governments etc um it's constantly changing and i think as you kind of said late 90s um the practices which are just considered the norm and you'd be someone would look over the fence and go oh my godfather how on earth were you doing that but even uh what are we 12 years ago when i first left school and the first farm i worked on we weren't using gps or anything and probably within three or four years people would go what kind of property were you working on like <laughs> And that's the thing I, I love about farmers and I suppose that's what the landline team tries to do in our work is to show urban people or people say living in a regional area who are not part of farming that if they are, don't fall for this narrative that farmers are stuck in the past. I mean, the uptake of technology, it, farmers are just amazing that they're adapting. Go to farms where older farmers, you might say, Older people generally have, have difficulty um, uptaking tech. Well, go out and interview farmers in their sixties, and they're they, they're running, um, you know, computerized irrigation systems, driving very 
complicated tractors with, as you say, GPS and all sorts of programs that see an apps on their phone that helps them do their job. And I love showing that they're at the cutting edge because, you know, we can travel a little bit like I have into, say, Europe and America on farm tours. The issue of subsidies in those countries, it, it really enhances innovation and our farmers, the unsubsidised world that they live in, it just drives innovation. And those that don't innovate get, get left behind. And I find that really exciting. And it just goes, it's just counter to that view that they're all fashion stuff in She want a bit of hay and talk slow. It's just so wrong. Well, and I think it, like, as we were kind of saying just before off air, the complexities involved in it, um, if you're a bad operator, when you've got so many kind of external factors influencing you, you're not going to be there for long. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I think when a far, I always imagine a farmer, say, filling in um, a form when they're arriving at an overseas airport, like, what is your job? And I feel like it's one of those you know, trick trick wallets where the card just card holder just comes out, folder up, folder. Well, I'm a vet, I'm a scientist, <laughs> I'm a computer technician, I'm an agronomist, I'm a plant specialist. And what they have to have their head around follows me. There was, I was chatting with someone about this the other week. This is how my brain works. Um, and we we're chatting about, there used to be that TV show, which was Australia's greatest athlete, which um, pitted like an AFL player against an Ironman. And I was chatting with someone and it was like, imagine if there was one for like Australia's handiest person. And so it was like throw people in different situations where you need to be an out of the box thinker. And you'd think the farmer would perform pretty well against them all. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I, I went over to the farmer once who visited at my home, and my dad, being a journalist, and I think he owned a rusty, rusty saw, a lawnmower, a hammer, and a ladder. And a friend at the time said, "Oh, Mr. Courtney, can I? I need to fix something in my ute. I can I just go and look at your tools and use something." And came back upstairs, and he just looked at all of us like we were animals in the zoo. And later, he said. How do you pick this survive? That has no tools. The ones I said, we just call people. He said, "What? We <laughs> fix everything ourselves. We make stuff." And yeah, I, I'm always admiring. Like you know, my dad can change a washer or a light bulb or anything. <laughs> I'm a little bit the same, actually. As much as I hate to admit it, God, I'm definitely not the most handiest person when I, I'm pretty good at breaking things especially on farm but not so good at fixing them up generally look around to try and see who I can get to help me <laughs> but I am interested in understanding a little bit more about um, some of the difficult conversations and how I guess you've gone with facilitating them and actually creating space and maybe on that like have we lost that ability to debate and have difficult conversations and if we have how do you actually create those spaces if you look at Facebook sometimes and you just despair, there's no way if you were sitting with somebody at a dinner party or met that person in the pub that you'd be so rude. Um, yeah, uh, look, I despair of that a little bit. And I suppose it's hopefully landlines where we can watch something where both sides get a say and people can make up their own minds. Uh, I remember years ago I was doing this story on ozone Yoni's disease and I ran the DPI and asked if I could speak to one of their vets thinking this, you know, I've only only come in under their watch that they go, yeah, no, no way. I mean, I just thought it's a phone call I can say so that I've contacted them. And they called me back and agreed to an interview and I said to the lady vet, why would you agree to speak? If there's nothing in for you. I already had the interview in the can, but by then I wasn't going to say that beforehand. <laughs> I just knew I'd be treated fairly. And, uh, so I think that's, if we offer a space where people can air their views, the reporter's opinion will, will not see through. And uh, I think we just go to people, well, here's, here's this view, this view, this view, this view. Um, you make up your mind. Yeah. Uh, we don't have an agenda. But yes, I, I do despair and I do wish people just... But every now and then just not hit send 
just have a think about it. Sit on it for a little bit longer. What What have you learned about people's willingness to share their story and talk about kind of what they do or maybe why they don't talk about it? Uh, well, I, was, uh, I have a, a, a mate in America who's a rural journo and when we were in Texas many years ago, we think we were journos, we were trying to explain to him what the tall poppy syndrome was because they don't have it in America how hard we have to work sometimes to, to get a farmer to agree to be interviewed, whether it's a newspaper, radio or, or television. And this, this journal was absolutely mind-blown. He said, in America, farmers ring me up and say, put me on your front page and come out to my place, bring a photographer, write about me. Whereas Australian farmers are very modest. But when you find out about someone who's doing something else and you give them a call and they'll quite often reflect and say, go down the road or go over in a different valley it is much better than me. So, yeah, sometimes you have to be very persuasive. And um, a lot of people are very generous and give us their time and let us wander around their farms and film them rounding up sheep from five different angles. And I always wonder what the sheep think when we've gone and like, why did we get in there five times and then we went back to where we were this morning? <laughs> you know, what's going on? Yeah, so they're, they're very generous and I'm really grateful whenever a farmer says, yes, you can come out and give it time. I'll put water in a sprayer so you can film me spraying or I'll, I'll do a couple of laps in the in the tractor or, um, because it's doesn't, it's not a quick process doing a land one story. Be in someone's basis for a day, day and a half, two days. And, uh, but I really appreciate it when people are prepared to just say to people, this is what I do and this is how I do it and this is why I do it or my family does it. And I think they do it some of them tell me they want their kids to understand what the family have gone through to get to where they are, or it's good for the industry to, to be seen in a different light, or they realise that our program has very high penetration into urban areas and that it's a chance for urban people to really sort of understand what goes on. And mm. trying to make the best, you know, the top 10, 20% of farmers. For Sunday time slot, people have got many things like playing tennis or fishing or gardening or watching cricket on the telly. So we've got to give them a good reason to watch. You know, that you're in a different headspace Sunday lunchtime than you might be, say, Tuesday night. And it is it is super interesting, isn't it? Like because that 12:30 time slot on a Sunday in this day and age is like people are busy as much as I hate that word. Um, why do you think Landline has been successful? I think people love stories about other people and what makes them to. I don't think I'm alone in wanting to know why that person did that or dreamt about that or kept striving for that, even though you know, the business fell over or they got wiped out by floods or, or drought. So we're not ag 101 with pictures. If you want to learn about agriculture, the specifics of it, go to uni. We tell agricultural stories, but through people. So they're essentially people's stories and that ag information is the scaffolding around that person or that family or those couple of people. And I think also we take people places where they don't get to go. The places they're remote or say, West Coast of Tassie or dairy farms in the most lush, rolling hills around Gippsland or northern rivers of New South Wales. So I think you get to see amazing places, you get to meet amazing people, and you get to see where your food and fibre and where it comes from. And the executive many years ago from the ABC and said, I don't get it. I said, well, just have a think about how many times ag has touched you. I'm assuming you slept on cotton sheets and in cotton pajamas. You probably had milk on your on your corn flakes and you know, corn that someone had to grow that. Uh, did you have tea and coffee? Um, did you put on cotton shirt? It's a cold day. Wool woolen jumper, woolen socks, wool suit. Lunchtime? Did you have a beer? Did you have a champagne? Look, ag touches you all day. Why wouldn't you be curious about who makes it, how hard it is? And it's all 
so reliant on the weather, other countries and their political um, views change in a minute. I was like, oh, yeah. never thought about it. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. And like, why do you, like, where do you think, I'm going to say agriculture, like, where does the storytelling go wrong in the sense of landline is really well received, but there's still this growing disconnect of people in urban and rural areas and like when it comes to that the influence is all around them like are we telling the stories in maybe potentially starting at the farm gate where we should be starting at the plate and coming back or do you think people just aren't too interested (laughs) i think there's lots of different ways so you could say country style magazine they tell stories um about you know the beautiful life you can have in the country You've got chefs or, or say a food magazine formerly traveller. They they might you know, profile a farm that's producing free range pork or whatever. So I don't think there's just one way to tell real good stories. There are multitudes of ways, whether it's through cooking or home design, you know, beautiful homes, uh, through tourism, come and stay on our on our farm stay. Come to our region, see the dinosaur prints out at Winton. So I don't think there's just one way. And then you've got the country hour, which is very hard ag. And us, you've got all the regional newspapers, you've got then the, the rural newspapers. So I don't know that there's anything going mm. wrong. Yeah. I do think, though, the media landscape is fractured and people's attention can go in so many different ways, podcasts, audio books, all the streaming services. So we don't have that captive audience sitting there for appointment television anymore. And we can be seen online, but look at all the competition we've got. Um, it's just a matter of working, what, what's what's your in point? What will get that person thinking about agriculture? Is it through food? Is it through the beautiful um, sandstone homesteads in Tasmania? Is it uh, through land care? There's so many different ways to touch people. Or is it just baby animals? Mm. <laughs> baby lambs, baby goats that give you a cuddle. Um, you know, we filmed a couple of years ago this uh, goat uh, goat dairy. They've got a wassy goats. They, they're from the Middle East. They grew up with their owners. And she just said, it's something embedded in hundreds of years of them. But if you pick them up, and lean into you and give you a cuddle. And filming these city people cuddling these little boats that did not want to be put down. It was now you can't tell me that wasn't a fantastic experience. And I mean I remember watching their reaction. And um, so many different things. And it's just a matter of putting your thinking came on. But unfortunately you do see a lot of people who are sitting on a story, who's sitting on a way to connect with urban people. And either to get people to come out and spend money in your region or to maybe moderate their views that they might be expressing on Facebook, but they don't need mm. to. So when it comes to landline, another question, just in terms of, so um, obviously we know what you guys do, stories about agriculture, showing the innovations and I guess the forward thinking and progressive way that people are doing it. So how do you find, how do you find your stories? And maybe for people who have, watched it but never actually thought about the process of everything that sits behind it one how do you go and find your stories and two what does that process kind of look like for you from start to finish well i will go to the opening of an envelope if it means that i might meet somebody or sit next to somebody who can tell me a story um 
I subscribed to Pepsi and newsletters and magazines. And I get to the end of the year and I'm always frustrated because the pile of stories I want to do, that I would love to have done, is way bigger than the pile of stories that I have done. So it's not it's not like looking for a needle in a haystack. They're everywhere. And that is one of my frustrations is that I think there are people out there who could be uncovering those stories and working out where to direct them to all the different outlets. But that they are everywhere. I suppose the rule is what is news? Chop the S off. What's new? That's what we're looking for. And so when I started early in my career, the wool industry had collapsed, so I did a lot of stories about people coming up with innovative ways of using wool. That would be a harder story to pitch now because it's not so new. Mm. Um, zero to minimum two. That was that was so out there. Now it's normal, and you, know, you don't do stories about things that are. Yeah. There's always something. You know, there's always someone you meet, someone having a crack, and sometimes it's about people going back to the old ways. There's so many, so many different stories out there. What is it? Everything that's old is new again, or everything that's new is once old, or something. <laughs> And my, my dad always used to say, there's always every single person has a story. It's just up to you to get it out of them. And there was a famous Melbourne pup years ago, and the horse that everybody wanted to win was reckless. And the, the strapper for the father, who used to strap the father, this lovely old guy called Tommy Woodcock, and the horse was called reckless. And everyone wanted him to win. I don't think anyone knows who won the Melbourne Cup that year, but the horse that came second was was who what everybody needs to talk about. Sometimes it's the horse mm. that came last. So stories aren't there are so many different ways you can tell stories. It's mind blowing. And I just get so frustrated at the end of the year. It's fifty stories in my my story pile and I just can't can't get to them. And like are you content with that? Or is this what probably keeps you turning up um day on day, week on week, year on year to keep going? Yeah, well, it was, it was, I think my third or fourth year, I realised I was saying to people, oh, well, I'll put that, you know, that in the diary for next year. I was like, oh, well, I'm not going anywhere, am I? I'm interested in in this. And every year I start, I go, gosh, wasn't what I doing when, you know, when wheat's being harvested. And, you know, my year is broken up, I suppose, in, into to seasons. You know, it's, it's vintage or it's cotton harvesting. What stories can I be out there doing? But yeah, that just white land line would have to be a daily hour show. We could still fill it. That's how many amazing stories there are. Well, I was going to say, because you must spend so much time on the road to actually get the stories to keep them within those time bounds of what's relevant um, and traveling. How often are you traveling? Well, some days it's just a three day trip, a day trip. Sometimes it's a week. One of my colleagues is in WA, he's there for a fortnight. He'll come back with a swag of stories. Um, and, yeah, just, just when I'm thinking I really want to be home, I'm home, and then when I'm home, because you've got to come back, transcribe the interviews, write the script, and, um, and do the hostings, where, whether it's here in, in Brisbane or out on the road. Just when I'm starting to think, I'm sick of this desk, I'm off again. <laughs> <laughs> and I really don't mind... The key in the hotel door, and I just, I just go, oh, another hotel room. I never go, another hotel room. And we don't go anywhere. Why? Well, they're always modest and they're nice, modest. But a few people said, "Aren't you sick of that?" Oh, I don't know. Just put the key in and go, oh. Serendipity. What's going to be on the other side of this door? <laughs> Pub crew and have a have a meal, and I'll wear my landline hat, and it's just a a little landline cap with landline written on it. And invariably, somebody will come up and say, "Do you work at landline? Do you from landline?" No. Invariably, I'll come home with one one story. Not just the local uh, the local legend in the pub, though. Either there'd be a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was I watch the show. <laughs> uh, at what stage or was there a story that um, you, I guess, really maybe cemented within yourself that, wow, I'm I'm bloody good at what I do and 
have a knack for getting people's stories out? Never. Never. No, I think self-doubt is, I think you can always do better, always striving to write a better script, do a better review. No, I never ever thought that said, I can't even say it aloud. That's just not. So how do you balance the self-doubt then and maybe the perfectionist within you in terms of actually just needing to get things done as well? I, I think I'm like the farmers that I report on. They, you know, the one percenters, the ones who say, if I can increase my yields or output by 1% and reduce my cost by 1% or make my staff bill come down 1%, but increase happiness by 1%, get 1% more tree cover, 1% more birds, I'm always doing that with my, my work. How can I be better there? Could I have done a better job on that? Um, and sometimes when I'm watching the show, I'll be like, oh, no, that sentence is so bad. <laughs> Why? Or that that paragraph shouldn't be before that one. So I think once you think that you, you've nailed it, you're in trouble. Yeah. And I don't know a farmer that's sitting there going, I've nailed it, and sitting in you know, a rocking chair in the front of the and going, I got nothing new to learn. I don't know any, but I don't get to meet farmers like that. Yeah. So do you think like it is, you're always, uh, I guess, happy enough with the story you're putting out, but going, there's always improvement and something better I could have done? Look, I think I've done, I think I've done two stories in my life where I looked at them all again. I got nothing. I got nothing to fix, to tweak. Yeah, what was it about them? Uh, one was a story about Brian Acton. Much, mm-hmm. much missed Beef Baron from Rockhampton. And I'm going to cry when talking about it. Um, just everything went right. And so, the other one was the Chinchilla Melon Festival. Every person I interview, sometimes you interview people like Vox Pops and you go, yeah, I can't use that, won't use that. Every Vox Pop was gold. Every time we turned a corner to go an event, to an event, it was starting in three minutes. So we had time to set up and film it. Whereas so many of those sorts of frantic days where you can't control the timetable of anything, you turn up, oh, that was on five minutes ago, love, or no, that, that's, that's when cancer, because someone got sick or it, it was the perfect shoot. And I was actually, no, 15 years ago, I was talking to the cameraman who was actually filming it for Gardening Australia on the weekend. He said, during that shoot, everything went wrong. And then we got invited to the, the big wall. And I said, well, I don't have anything. And this lady just looked me up and down to see, I'll be back in an hour and she turned up with a dress that fitted, shoes that fitted. Um, that was that was pretty amazing. And um, what was my other one? It's the day you got to buy your lotto ticket, Pip. <laughs> the Graham, oh, and the other one was uh, one I did uh, at my husband's shop. And he died before I um, did the story, so I had to transcribe and listen to him talking to me and talking to the talent. Um, that was really hard. And I did a very unusual start to the story and actually used John Sports during you normally cut out the cameraman's voice with a sound though. You don't want that in the story. So, yeah, my chicken run story, I was really proud of that. A, that I got it written. B, that I didn't go mad <laughs> during during the process. And I was just really, I think he would have been really proud of me, that one. He wouldn't have liked the fact that I started with the fact we had an argument about who, which way the story would start and, and how I chose mine. <laughs> <laughs> The first time uh, I think a reporter has said they argued with their husband about how the story should start, and I won. Yeah, so those three really standing. And I've got a question on that, and you can say not keen to chat about it at all. But like many of the f- stories you've probably shared of farmers, farmer partnerships, and these incredible people that it does take a, a true partnership um, in so much of rural Australia. But for you, and maybe people who listen to our podcast aren't actually aware, but 
you and your husband formed quite a partnership over quite a few years. What was it working with him, I guess, that made you guys a successful and a bit of a dynamic duo? Uh, well, he was a very talented like, I love watching him. It's like watching a master. And uh, he really loved the topics. It's not much fun if you take a camera away and they're bored. Yeah. He <laughs> <laughs> wasn't to be into it as much as you are. And look, that, that really helps. Um, loved watching him work. I love the fact that he could take my dreams for the story about how it could look and turn that into reality. And I love watching him be so delightful with talent and you could see that he would put them at ease and he got them. Yeah, and we just got to share share this amazing journey together. Um, because he didn't always work on that. So he would come in and tell me what he was doing, where he'd been, if my people were interested and vice versa. So when we got those, the opportunity tell stories to get and we yeah. story in Western Australia where we couldn't afford a sound course. So it was just him and I driving along in a full drive for a day to get to the location and we just looking at each other going, Can you believe I'm working? Yeah. <laughs> we get to this place and we're filming sunsets and sunrises and the horror, most horrible spiking weed I've ever seen. And the talent were amazing. I couldn't believe the ABC had sent someone to this remote area to talk about this serious, serious weed that was covering thousands of kilometers. And yeah, that was pretty special. Do you no, think? Do you think he was pitching uh, himself to try and get on more of your stories and go, "My God, this is so much better than the stuff I've been covering." Oh, one thing he used to do too. Put people at ease. Say someone might say, I don't know whether I really want to do that. And say, Matt, look at me. Look at me. I'm married to her. <laughs> yes. Matt, it would be a lot easier. And he'd wink at me because yeah, he's making me out to be bossy boots. <laughs> She's actually a bit of a push over, mate, but look at work. Hope you don't mind it. And thank you. We've got the shot. <laughs> So he did like teasing me, yeah. What would be, if you could do any story at any time in history about agriculture and rural Australia, now into the future, in the past, whatever it could be, what would be one story you'd love to do? Gosh, let me look at my big pile of stories. <laughs> no, I've always wanted to go follow this thread back to see who was the person who said we're going to make the Angus breed better. Because I've spoken to some old guys who say, oh, Angus, 50s and 60s, maybe some of the oldest things, but you can correct me. It's only anecdotal. Uh, they were little and they were cranky. They're not little anymore. So if somebody has decided we've got to take this breed from the seventh most popular to the most popular. And success has so many mothers and fathers. But was it in a, around a, a campfire one night over some bungies or whiskey or whatever, Americans drink? Who decided we've got to get, we've got to breed the best with the best. We've got to cull. We can brand this animal. Yeah. I would like to know, is there just one person or was there one mom? Or was it one of those, was it a, a joke that someone thought there is absolutely no way we're going to get these mad little things to into something that's good and uh, someone decided they'd prove them wrong? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to know to know that. Um, no, I'd love to do the definitive story on the Murray-Darling Basin, but... Mm, you need a bit of time. There are some stories where there's an obvious truth. This is was truths for everybody from the start of the basin right down to the very bottom. But it would be great to be able to say, I think I know that, but I think that would be like trying to make no national territory. So I always dream that one day I'm going to be in the pub 
with my landline pattern. And this person's going to wander up and I realise that they're the beautiful. They're the person that knows everything about the Murray-Darling base, what the right things are for the environment, for every community, for every industry. If that person is out there, please call me. <laughs> with your your realist hat on like is there like is this going to be just a, the issue which just goes on and on and on and continues to divide or do you think there is an end inside at some stage I, look, I, I mean i admire everybody in that space working to try and do the best by all the competing reasons yeah, I, you know, with all the will in the world, you just hope that they can come up with, with a great solution. Yeah. You know, climate change impacts. I spoke to an academic several years ago and he was giving his engineering students a project to make the, the Bradfield scheme in Queensland work. Is it possible? And he said they came back with some really interesting proposals. But he said... One of the most interesting things that came out of it was as the rainfall patterns have changed, if we were going to spend billions in a new dam irrigation system, that's not the right place anymore. And that has always stuck with me that as climate change impacts, things will change. I've met people who've moved their operation from Victoria to Tasmania because the climate change and growing sheep there wasn't, the, their property was now better for growing grain than sheep. So I think that's so much that's coming down the pipe that we don't know. And climate change doesn't do And climate change doesn't just mean drought. It means more severe weather events. So, yeah. Be no shortage of stories. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, you know, and farmers have to try and factor this in. It's just this like new column that you've got to add into your business and thinking. Mm. So I think the carbon carbon economy, the way that that accounting is done, that's going to be really interesting. So what does climate change mean for various industries that are location specific or farms that have been growing the same thing but Three or four generations. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Very interesting to see what exists in the next God, 50, 60, 70 odd years. It's um it, it is changing, isn't it? And I guess the but off the back of that too, then that's where the innovation is coming from as well, which is exciting. This world will never get to learn. There's always something new or interesting or or a twist on what's understood. The number of stories we do on carbon now, part of the stories we do on regenerative farming, which can be a bit controversial. Some people don't like that we do stories about regenerative farming. It's implicit in that, they say, is criticism of what they do. Yep. But as new information comes to hand, I think that's the interesting thing that we see farmers adopting it. And that doesn't mean that you've got to do it. But here's an example of someone who says this is probably, say, the last in the drought first out or help them get carbon credits or help them brand themselves as carbon neutral or even carbon positive. Yeah, sometimes the new rubs people up the wrong way. Yeah, no, it can. And I think it's exciting. Like, we're, there's obviously lots of talk about it, but the world has made a decision that we're going to decarbonisation. So as an industry, if there's opportunity there and there is practices which can create opportunity or alternative incomes, you're, you're mad to, I guess, deny it. <laughs> the markets, the markets will control a lot of it. Mm. Um, for I can't sell my granola to Europe if I had less than 3% tree cover. And they're going to start setting rules about how Australians farm. Some Australian farmers are like, no one gets to tell me what to do. It's like, well, unless you're going to buy your own canola, um, <laughs> yes, someone is actually going to tell you what to do. Are they going to tell you what's acceptable with animal welfare, with tree cover, with biodiversity? And that's not going to change. 
mm. and your events and come up with who knows if we chatted in ten years' time, uh, what what rules will the Europeans have wrapped around uh, our influence? Will it be glyphosate? Will it be tree cover? Will it be koalas? No. Mm. Who knows? And how many stories will you shed in that time as well? I've got a couple of rapid fire questions I want to ask you, and I think it's a good conduit for that because my team and I were chatting about it, and they said so. People obviously work so many long hours. What, what what do you reckon her coffee order would be? So I'm just going to guess a humble flat white. Don't drink coffee. You just got a really bad diet coke problem. I mainline diet coke. Oh, there you go. No one will get that right. What Akubra do you wear? Cattlemans and the Plainsman. Is there one you that's your favourite? Cattlemans. There you go. Why is that? Sort of a hat you could wear in Tasmania where we laugh. At any hat taller than that. Like, it's like you've been in the dress up box. And it just gets me to sort of central Queensland before people start saying, why is your hat not high enough? Uh, one uh, farm manager up in the farm of Queensland said, You're not coming onto my farm with that sheepy little hat of yours. <laughs> <laughs> I just tried to pick a hat that would have been the least number of viewers. It's <laughs> <laughs> working all right so far. 20 odd years. And it's not pastoralist, you know, which some people have said that's for owners, not workers, because the brim's too small, so it's not going to protect you from the sun all day. But, yeah, if you're an owner, you're inside. Or, yeah. <laughs> and I guess you've got to be mindful that um, you're not wearing it in the car too much, so then it's flicked up at the back because then people obviously say, oh, Pip, you don't get out enough and everything else that goes with it. No, we <laughs> Two other questions I'd love to finish on. So we're focusing on a bit of a theme for the month of March around women in agriculture. And there has been some fascinating stories and things I've kind of discovered looking into it and just the role that women have played in ag. And the first obviously being the Women's Land Army in World War II. That is incredible. Um, And so we're going to just share a bit of content around that because I think that is such an interesting part of Australian history that, I don't think many people know. It's, uh, yeah, Landline had a story on it, I think it was last year, and just seeing all the old archival vision, it's just amazing and hearing the stories. And then the, the beautiful young reporter in our office who did the story said, oh, archives gave me a story that you did 15 years ago. Let's <laughs> <laughs> laugh at my hair and my Harry Potter glasses. And it was lovely to go back down that memory lane again. And I got a chance to interview some of the ladies who had actually done it. And gosh, just extraordinary. I yeah. don't, don't think women were ever the same again. No, an extraordinary, like from all sorts of backgrounds. I was, I was going to ask another rapid fire question. How many stories do you reckon you've done? Because I can actually go into the library, the ABC, and enter my name now that reporters are allowed to. Go in and access that. Mm. I might do that. I wonder, but that would include all the ones I did as a TV news reporter. <laughs> so sometimes that was a good day. Because my mum said that she's kept um, most of the stories on VHS and she thinks I might want them one day. <laughs> Hopefully she kept the VHS too. <laughs> I don't think we can get me a really nice copy. <laughs> this big. Um, and then I just love that she thinks the VHS would be worth watching. Um, didn't have a machine played on. I don't know, hundreds and hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. Not so in the thousands. 20, 29 years, up to 25 a year, some years, 20 a year, other years. So for 29 years. And some of them would be shorter. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, you get the chance to go and talk to year 10 students in a metro area. Why should they consider a career in agriculture? Well, money is now good across the board and it's always good in some areas, but the money's good. Rural communities are, sometimes I come back from shoots and I really think, I want to live in that community. What a tight community. What a, everybody that we meet, some on some shoots is on five committees. 
and they, they just pull together. Um, that will be accepted. The work is interesting. The work can take you around the world. And no two days will be the same in most jobs. So whether you want to be, you know, an agribusiness banker based in Sydney, station manager, or plant specialist, and if you work in ag, you're part of a family, you're part of a beef industry family, or a grain growing family, this tight knit industry networks, this tight knit community networks. And uh, I just meet people who wouldn't do anything else. It's not just a job, it's a passion. And I think that work can be thrown around for some once they're in, it's, it's appalling. I just see so many people so satisfied with what they're doing and where they're doing. If every job paid the same pip, what job do you think you'd do? If I couldn't do this job, I would like to be, I'm fascinated with little big cats of the world. So I don't know, I'd like to be an expert. See, I'm focused at science and focused at math, so I can't. So this is like, can I also be a science dum-dum and, and kick any job I would like? Absolutely. Every job pays the same. So you can just chop and change. <laughs> so we're not talking about what I've got skills to do. <laughs> I'd love to know something about the big cats around the world, jaguars and cheetahs and lions and tigers. That'd be cool. But in ag, oh, in ag, I just have to run a, a vineyard that produces the best sparkling wine in Australia. Decent job. <laughs> Well liked too. Wouldn't be too bad at all. I have to try some every day. <laughs> that would be my, my dream, mate. The best sparkling Tasmanian sparkling oil. But I don't have the skills, so I just have to buy it instead. Oh well, at least you're supporting someone else who can. And I reckon um the work you do is absolutely extraordinary. I know you you said you're not an advocate for agriculture, you are independent in what you do, but I do think there's so many people who have are now aware of agriculture and have come across it because of your work. So, well, one of the great moments I had was a couple of years ago. I was in Samoa doing some media training with Pacific journalists about agriculture and how to cover it. And that uh, we we went along and met some Australian scientists helping improve the basic crops there. And these two young scientists in their late twenties came up and said hello, and they said, "Do you?" Do you have any idea what landline has meant to us? I said, no, tell me. Both grew up in the cities, had no intention of ever working in agriculture. They watched landline and they became agricultural scientists. And boy, that made me feel like, wow, what what the landline team of reporters does and producers and what we do, wow, that was that was hard to talk. And they said, we're so pleased we did love our job. But we would never have even thought about it growing up in Sydney. This is a job. That's so cool. Yeah. And I'm sure there's so many other stories of people who haven't been fortunate to take a selfie with you in Melbourne or reach out to you on LinkedIn as well that can say that um, you have really inspired them down their various pathways. So thank you for the opportunity to chat. My pleasure. Look, it's really the, the people who appear on our program who do all the inspiring and just the conduit really and if they're happy to talk to me and and the others in in our team because there are a lot of other there's a team of reporters some of them been there a long time as well they're like me that this is a calling this is this job's addictive because you just know next week might even be something more amazing than the one next week <laughs> interesting okay. topics are big ones like water use in Australia, does it get any bigger? Um, soil, you know, improving the soil so that we can meet the growing demand of food. It doesn't get any bigger than that. Social license in agriculture, that is huge. Um, there's so many of the big issues that agriculture involved. Absolutely, there is. Thank you for the chance to, to chat with you. And I can't wait to see what stories you're working on and what's next. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about the one I've got on this weekend and the one I've got on next weekend. And 
boss did say at my last assessment, wish you weren't interested in just everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I wasn't interested in everything. (laughs) Someone's got to do it. Thanks, Alan. No worries. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that chat. I felt like I was really just sitting down with Pip for a coffee and we certainly covered a bit of country and some just incredible stories. I think the people she's met and the things that she's seen and and what she's reported on really is shaping rural Australia and getting those stories into the mainstream, which is just incredible. Now, if you are a regular listener, thank you. If this is your first time listening or you just haven't hit the follow or subscribe button, we'd love for you to do that. That way, every Wednesday morning when we've got a new Humans of Agriculture episode up, you can jump on in. Cheers. See ya.